Well, brethren, we are concluding this morning our series that we've been in on the love of God. Uh, there are many more texts we could look at, but at some point you simply have to stop. And I wanted to stop, in a sense, where we're beginning. We're beginning a new year, and what a wonderful reminder we have here in this word we're going to consider this morning of the love of God for us and really the truth that we need to hold on to as we move into a new year. So we're looking this morning at Ephesians chapter 3 and Paul's second prayer in this letter. Ephesians chapter 3 and what we're going to do is read verses 14 to 19 stopping short of his benediction there in verses 20 and 21. Well, before we read the Word of God, let us ask for God's help in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come as needy sinners to be instructed in the truth of Your Word. We come knowing that the natural man cannot understand the things of Your Spirit, for they're spiritually discerned. So Lord, we pray for Your Holy Spirit to help us to open our eyes, to unstop our ears, to give our hearts a readiness to receive the truths that You set before us. And we pray it would lead to a transformation of our lives. Lord, work this work in us, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you stand with me as we read the Word of God together? Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14 to verse 19. For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Brethren, please be seated. The book of Ephesians is a fascinating book. It's a book that begins with Paul taking us into the stratosphere of spiritual blessings, particularly in the opening three chapters, but right out of the gate, Paul's mood is one of bursting delight. You perhaps remember the doxological hymn that begins Ephesians 1. Praise to the Father for electing us in Christ. Praise to Him for His predestinating love to adopt us through Jesus. Praise to the Son for His blood-bought redemption. And praise to the Spirit with whom we've been sealed as a guarantee of our inheritance. All that has been done, Paul says, is to the praise of God's glorious grace. And then chapter 2 continues this amazement at grace, which in two sections describes what we were and what we have now become. We were dead in our sin, now we're alive in Christ. We were separated from Christ, but now we who are far off have been brought near. More than that, Christ has made the two groups, Jew and Gentile, one in the church. He's reconciled them to God and given us access to God through Christ by the Spirit. Indeed, the Holy Spirit actually indwells us to make us a fit house 
for the living God. And with these additional blessings of grace enumerated, Paul now turns to prayer in chapter 3, starting at verse 14, before he gets into the doctrinal section exhorting you to duty on the basis of all that he's told us. And you'll notice in Ephesians 3.14, he starts out with, for this reason. That is, in view of all that our God has done, Paul now prays for the work of the Spirit in our inner man with power that we would become a fit place for Christ to dwell. Paul is telling us that there's a restoration project underway that we as believers may be fortified and growing in likeness to Jesus Christ. Now, this growth into conformity with Christ, which the Spirit is working, might make us all think solely of the physical work of restoration, what we could call the putting off evil deeds and the putting on new patterns. And that's a biblical ethic, the active, hands-on engagement of godly living. And Paul will describe that in the latter half of this book as a walk. And he'll use that word repeatedly. But the work of sanctification authored by the Spirit within us also leads us to a certain way to think. It's not just about the doing. It's about how you think. And it's that mental engagement, that relational knowing, which occupies Paul in part two of this prayer, which we're considering here in verses 17b to 19. Now, ultimately, Paul's concern is this, that we as God's people know the love of Christ. Not a mere cognitive understanding, but an experimental or experiential acquaintance with the love of Christ. So as we reflect on that in Paul's prayer, we're going to look at four things together. First, I want you to see with me the stability of love. Now, we're starting in the middle of the prayer. Uh, I simply can't preach for an hour and a half. Uh, so we're starting in the middle of the prayer, uh, middle of verse 17, which reads like this, that you being rooted and grounded in love. And we have to immediately ask how this clause is related to what came before. The clause literally reads in this fashion, in love, having been rooted and grounded. A past act with ongoing effects. Verse 18, in order that you may have strength to comprehend. In other words, Paul is praying this. Since you have been rooted and grounded in love, a condition already granted to you by grace, I am now praying for grace that you might be able to comprehend and know the love of Christ. In the little clause here, in the second half of verse 17, in love, emphatic, being rooted and grounded, it looks back to the foundation upon which the lives of believers are built. So it begs a question, <clears throat> how have we been rooted and grounded in love? So much of our study in the love of God has considered this. How is it that we're grounded in the love of God? Well, Paul's had an answer to that in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 1, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In other words, God set His love upon us in Christ before time began. 
But then, Ephesians 2, 4, the day came when love met us. Though we were dead and doomed in ourselves, God took action. You remember this great but God cause. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace that you have been saved. Paul has been telling us throughout the letter thus far, God in love elected us, and God in love united us to Christ with saving power. In other words, in love, God set us apart for Christ, for salvation, before time began. But then the moment came in space and time in our personal histories where God lavished His love upon us, where He attached us to Jesus, where He showered us with affection through the Spirit's awakening and indwelling power. He brought us into fellowship with Himself through Jesus Christ. And now we are called the children of God. We are those in Christ. The Sovereign Lord has therefore rooted us in the soil of love. He has grounded us upon the immovable foundation of His everlasting covenant mercies. We exist as new creatures in Christ due to the love of God. And brethren, that love which sought us and attached us to Jesus is now bringing about a transformation in our lives. Now to use the agricultural metaphor Paul is using here, we're rooted in the soil of love, like Psalm 1 imagery. We're, we're a tree transplanted, planted in the soil of God's love. And now, like a growing healthy tree, we soak in the nutrients. We soak in the love that envelops us with the result that we blossom. We bear fruit. Love now flows from us. But before we can bloom with love, we must first understand and cherish the love that has been shown to us by the Father in Christ. And I ask you a really simple question. Do we cherish it? Do we treasure the amazing love of God in Jesus Christ? Do we grasp the security that we have? The figurative language that Paul is using, rooted and grounded in love, it pictures stability. We've been given deep roots into unchanging love so that the storms of life will never uproot us. We've been laid on an unbreakable foundation so the crashing waves coming against us won't shatter us. We've been firmly attached to a love from which we can never be severed. In the passive language here, having been rooted and grounded indicates you didn't do this. You have been shown unconditional, free, amazing grace. And Paul wants you to be in awe of this love. Are we? You know, when God reveals His great covenant to David that He'll have a, a forever son on a forever throne with a forever kingdom. So one time in the Bible, somebody sits down to pray. He 
he goes in and he sits down before the presence of God and he says, Who am I? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? That should be our response. Lord, who am I that I should be loved like this? Or in the words of Isaac Watts, why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands made a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Why me, Lord? The answer is because of His love. But Paul, brethren, isn't interested in us having a momentary appreciation of incomprehensible love. He wants an ongoing, soul-gripping response to the love of God in Christ. So he prays. And that leads us, secondly, to see the strength to comprehend love. The strength to comprehend love. Since you've been planted in the soil of God's love and built on the foundation of God's love, Paul says, I pray that you, verse 18, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now we'll come back to those four dimensions shortly, but I want you to notice already that the four dimensions have no object. Paul doesn't say the breadth and length of something. He just kind of leaves it hanging. That's led some to propose that the dimensions here refer to the power of God, which is a theme in Ephesians. Or maybe the wisdom of God. Job 11 mentions the four dimensions of wisdom. But I think from the context, the object to comprehend is the love of Christ. Paul is emphatically conveying the vastness of Christ's love by, on the one hand, using four-dimension language, love that spreads in every direction, and on the other hand, by saying that this love surpasses knowledge, which is a parallel thought to love spreading in four directions. And just ponder the mystery of that for a moment. I want you to know something that surpasses knowledge. He's already telling you, you can't do this. You have to have grace to do this. And even if you could do it by grace, you can't ever reach the end of it. Again, which is why heaven's going to be so great. You'll never get bored. You'll never grow weary. Oh, I've learned it all already. It won't be like that. Love surpasses knowledge. But the force of Paul's language here conveys that he himself is overwhelmed by the enormity of the love of Christ. It is vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. And as he prays for his fellow believers to look at Christ's love, Paul yearns for us not to have a mere intellectual apprehension of this love. He does pray that we would comprehend it. Comprehension is necessary. We have to contemplate the love of Christ. We have to study the doctrine, the facts of God's love in Jesus Christ. But he wants it to move from your head to your heart. I don't want you simply to comprehend it, but I want you to know it. I want you to have an intimate understanding, a personal acquaintance with this love. Do you see he's praying for an experiential knowledge of the love of Christ so that it touches your mind, yes, but also your affections and your will. But also notice, brethren, Paul isn't praying that we would love Christ more. Though that's a great prayer. More love to thee. O Christ, Elizabeth Prentice's hymn. 
But he's praying rather that we would mentally grasp and intimately understand Christ's love for us. That's different. Now, surely the moment, and some of you know exactly when this was, surely the moment when our eyes were opened to see Jesus and to rest in Him, we discerned at that moment His great love for us, amazed that He would make us His own, purchasing us with His blood. But the longer we live as Christians, where we're still stumbling, but Christ's love continues, where we face daily trials and unbelief and anxiety well up in our heart, but Christ's love continues, where the Spirit is revealing new depths of understanding of biblical texts, and you say things to me like, I've been going to church and reading the Bible for 20 years, and I, I never saw that. I don't know that that's really comforting to the pastor, by the way. It makes me sound like I'm saying something novel. When we preach things, and it's like something, the light was turned on for you, and you didn't see it before, because you're blind, because of unbelief. I don't know what it was, but Christ's love continues. The Lord just keeps showing you the depths, the wonder, the amazement of His sacrificial love. And all these things should lead us to go on marveling and delighting in the love of God in Jesus Christ. Or to put it another way, Paul doesn't want us to swim in the shallows of this glorious truth. Though we could sing this morning, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Nothing wrong with that song. But He wants to plunge us into the inexhaustible depths of infinite, eternal, unchangeable love. Love that abounds over the devastation of sin. Love that can never be cut off. Love that began before we existed. Love that runs from eternity to eternity. Love that makes us heirs of God and co-heirs together with Christ. And this love should stir us with perpetual wonder. It should provoke in us a desire to study this love that rolls over us like a mighty ocean in its fullness. And yet, before we even get to wade into the pool, the kiddie pool of Christ's love, there's a truth that Paul is teaching us as he prays. He's praying that we would understand this. And that assumes something. You need grace to go deeper. It assumes there will be no growth in grasping Christ's love without divine power. This is not just an intellectual exercise. I have known people who knew the Shorter Catechism and could say the whole thing, and they are without Christ. You have to have grace to go deeper into this. You need the Spirit of God working powerfully in your inner man so that you would make progress in understanding the love of Christ. Christ's love is so immense. It's so far beyond what the human mind tainted with sin can grasp so that the Spirit is needed to illumine our hearts. We have to first be rooted and grounded in love, elected and redeemed, and then we must be taught by God. We must be guided into truth by the Spirit and how is it that God teaches us? He teaches us through the proclamation of His Word. He shows us as we read a love that endures, that puts up with Abraham and his ongoing sin, that loves rascals like Samson. How do you love a guy like that? That, that love that will continue to speak to, to failing Israel over and over and over and over. 
This love blows the doors on all the categories of human love that we could ever develop. Because it's by its very nature surpassing our capacity to understand. You have to have grace. You are helpless without divine energy banishing the darkness in your heart that blinds you to the boundless love of Jesus Christ. So seeing this truth, surely we ought to join Paul in prayer that the Father would grant the Spirit in us to take us to Jesus, to show us Jesus, to reveal the love of Jesus, to satisfy our hearts with Jesus. Remember those words of the Greeks who come to Philip in John 12? They have that simple expression, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. That's what I want. You see, when can a believer ever say, I've had my fill of the love of Christ. I understand enough. The believer wants to know more. Isn't this Paul's expression in a similar uh, prison epistle written in the same period of Philippians? How he wants more of Christ. He wants to know the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus. This is what life is about. He wants to behold the glory of Christ. The believing soul wants a sincere, pure devotion which arises out of a captivation with the ineffable love of Jesus. And the believing soul should resonate with the Christ-glorifying hymns, stunned by the love of Christ. Wesley's, Jesus, lover of my soul. Watts, alas, and did my Savior bleed. Newton's, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. I could go on. But beloved, do you want to know more of Christ? Do you want to know Christ's strength in your weakness and His help in your sorrow and His guidance in your darkness and that more than all in Him you find? Well, then you should pray for a Spirit-wrought grace to grasp the truth of the love of Christ so that you would deepen your communion with the Savior. And that leads me thirdly to the dimensions of Christ's love. Paul prays again, verse 18, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. I don't have time to elaborate on this. I just want to make a comment. This is a community project. You can't do this in the deer stand on a hill with Jesus. Just you and Jesus. That's not what Paul's praying. You can't do this apart from the body life of the church. You have to be with the people of God to get everything we're about to say. So that's really significant. With all the saints, I want you to have strength to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. One article in the Greek, that's the, a the, governs all four of these dimensions. So while there are different aspects <clears throat> of the love of Christ to consider, that love itself is a unity. So much like Parks mentioned this morning, we're reflecting upon God and His truth, we can look at it like a diamond. right? Christ's love is like a diamond. And we can look at a diamond in all of its different as aspects, of the intricacies of every curve. We can note every angle. Well, likewise, we can peer into the various dimensions of Christ's love. And that's what Paul does. Now, explore these with me for a moment. First, the breadth of Christ's love. A thought which would appear to be in view, what appears to be in view, is the wide reach of Christ's love 
to redeem those of every nation, tongue, tribe, and people. In fact, expansive love is a theme of the book of Ephesians. Paul is writing to a largely Gentile audience whom he reminds in chapter 1, you were not the first to hope in Christ. The first to hear the awakening call of the love of God in Christ were the Jews, with whom Paul identified by saying, we, we who were the first to hope in Christ. But then he speaks of the love of God which sought out the Gentiles. <clears throat> Ephesians 1.13, In Him, that is a Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The love of Christ declared in the gospel to needy sinners is so wide, it can take in those who were the recipients of the covenants of the promise and those who were strangers to those covenants, those who were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And what this broad love has done is nothing less than preach peace to those who are far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, Jews. Christ's love has taken in all of these varying groups destroyed the dividing wall of hostility and created a unified one new man in Jesus through the cross. And this only fulfills God's promise. Abraham was told in his seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Or Isaiah's servant song, Isaiah 49, the Lord says to his servant, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. I will also make you a light for the nations. What wondrous love. Love that has taken the circumcised and the uncircumcised, the barbarian and the Scythian, the slave and the free, and made them one in Jesus Christ. Brethren, do you understand the wonder of what the Gospel does to people separated by all kinds of things? The Gospel overcomes everything that separates man. Language difference, cultural customs, skin color, socioeconomic background. The love of Christ is so broad that it envelops even the likes of you and me. Here we are this morning, 2,000 years removed from Christ's resurrection, seven time zones and over 7,000 miles from the place where the gospel first rang out. But the love of Christ has found us and swept us into the church. What grace has been shown that we should be partakers of the love of Christ? And does this inexhaustibly broad love not compel us to take the gospel to the nations? And again, we should sing with Watts. Pity the nations, O our God, and constrain the earth to come. Send your victorious word abroad and bring the strangers home. What a beautiful thing that we can experience in our own church of just a little bit of glimpse of a glimpse of this truth of how God brings all different kinds of people and He unites them around Christ. But just imagine what the new heavens and new earth will be like when we stand with all the saints through all the ages of all nationalities and we sing with one voice to the Lamb. What a glorious thing that will be. The breadth of this love, but the length of this love. This too has been a theme of the letter. He praised the Father at the beginning for choosing a people in Christ. And when did He choose them? Before the foundation of the world. Scripture teaches elsewhere, Psalm 103, <clears throat> that the love of God is from everlasting to everlasting. The love of Christ reaches back before you believed, before you did anything good or bad, 
before you were born. Love reaches all the way back even to before God spoke the world into existence. For your name was written in the land's book of life before the foundation of the world. The Son of God, the one willing to come as our good shepherd, has always loved His people. Jesus is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. The love that He has for us is not a changeable love. No, it is a love which reaches from eternity past and carries us into eternity future. And Paul expressed this in chapter 2, in verse 7. He, he told us that this love which made us alive and raised us and seated us in the heavenly realms, it has a design that in the coming ages, the Lord would show to us the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, throughout time and eternity, we ransomed former rebels will bask in the love of Christ. Never cease to enjoy the benefits of love because there's going to be no variation in Christ's love. It's not like it is with us. We have to be honest. Sometimes we love each other more on one day than another. Sometimes we do things to one another and our love sinks very, very low. That's not how it is with Christ's love. It is changeless. That love set on you in eternity will live as long as the Savior lives and He has the power of an indestructible life. We are safe in a love like this. The height of the love of Christ. I think Paul is focusing here on the way Christ's love lifts us from the ash heap and makes us sit with princes, to use Hannah's expression in 1 Samuel 2. We're not left in our lowly, impoverished state where humiliation mars our existence. We're raised to the heights by the love of Christ. Again, at the end of chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul was looking at the heights. The very one, Jesus, who sunk down to the depths to rescue us, the Father exalted Him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that can be named, not only in this age, but the one to come. So that King Jesus now has supremacy over all. He's on the throne. But wonder of wonders, we who believe in Him, who are attached to Him, will also be raised like that. Ephesians 2 uses parallel language of exaltation. We were under the miseries of the curse, but love shattered our bondage. What happened to us? We've been made alive. We've been raised up with Christ. And, get this, seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Right now, in a mind-blowing way, we are already in the heights. We are already in heaven. I don't understand that. But it's what Scripture says. For our representative, the last Adam, is on the throne. And you're attached to Him. You're seated with Him there. And our attachment to Him as the first fruits of resurrection, it guarantees what will come for us in the future. Right now, we're spiritually raised. But what will happen in the days ahead will be bodily raised. This present body of humiliation will be conformed to the body of Christ's glory. We're already sons of God now, but we're going to see when Christ appears what the fullness of sonship means and we enter into the possession of our inheritance. It is truly the height of love that our Savior would take us, still wrestling with the remnants of sin, who evidence humiliation in body and soul every day and drive out all the humiliation from us and conform us to His perfection. That is staggering. 
We're not just pardoned and given peace and privileged to enjoy abiding grace. We're going to inherit the world. We get to sit down with our Savior on His throne. If I didn't see that in Scripture in Revelation 3.21, I couldn't believe it. But it's true. And when that day comes, when you are in the heights, what will your response be? I imagine it will be similar to what Annie Cousin, when she read Samuel Rutherford's letters, wrote to try to capture poetically what Rutherford wrote. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace. Not at the crown He gifteth, but on His pierced hand. The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's Lamb. The depth of Christ's love. Maybe this dimension is the easiest to grasp intellectually, and yet I think it's the one that baffles our minds above all others. Because how far did love stoop to save us? You know, the answer to that question, you have to go back to what was going on before Jesus took flesh. He's the eternal Word. He had glory with the Father before the world began. In John 12, Jesus says, when Isaiah had that image of the king on the throne and the angels are saying, holy, 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 that was a glimpse of Christ in His glory. The Son of God was the darling of heaven and all the angels were worshiping Him. But He humbled Himself. He stooped low. The very form of God which He had and never lost, He didn't regard equality with God as a thing to grasp, as to hang on to. He didn't cling to His rights, but He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant. He descended into the lower regions, the earth. He took our nature. He embraced our weaknesses and vulnerabilities. The infinite Son of God became flesh, a baby in the womb of Mary. And He was born into a state of poverty, a world of depravity, born to face suffering, born to be a man of sorrows, born to die. This is truly a love that surpasses knowledge that the everlasting Son of God would willingly take on the frailties of our flesh and humble Himself to death, even death on a cross. How great is this love? Do you remember right before Jesus has the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper we call it, with His disciples, John gives us in John 13 some personal reflection of Jesus. We're told this, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, so everything belongs to Him, that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper, laid aside His outer garments, and taking a towel tied around His waist. You understand what that's saying? Jesus knows the glory that was His from eternity and the glory to which He's returning. He's conscious of the heights that belong to Him, but He's willing to sink to the depths to wash feet, which is an emblem of a deeper sinking to wash sinners. The depth of Christ's love is shown as He goes to that cursed tree with our names upon His breast. And for whom does He die? Weak, helpless, filthy worms. Brethren, this shows us the depth of His love. Are you transfixed by the love like this? When you wake up in the morning, do you want to know more of this love? 
when you're battling temptation? Do you want to think on this love? How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against my God? When you're suffering and it's painful, do you look at this love as proof that the Lord is committed to you? That you're secure forever? Well, having increasingly comprehended and sought to abide in that love, do you give your life in response to the Lord as a, a P.S., I love you back. Finally, see with me the goal of knowing Christ's love. And I'll make this a very brief point. Look at the purpose clause at the end of verse 19. Why do we need to know Christ's love? That you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. As we are strengthened within by the Spirit, so that Christ is overtaking us more and more in our hearts, and as we know Christ in a more personal way, particularly knowing His love, the Father brings us into fullness. And the idea here is that we, together with the saints, are brought to maturity. The goal of the Christian life is to be conformed to the image of God's Son, who is fullness. We are to be shaped into His likeness. Or as Paul will put it in Ephesians 4, we are growing up into Him who is the head. That's a parallel thought here. Filled up to all the fullness of God. Now Paul does not mean, he does not mean that we become the fullness of God. You'll never be God. The finite can never reach up to the infinite. He can never embrace or comprehend the infinite. But the goal in salvation was to bring us to God's perfection, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. This is something that we could never bring about by ourselves. You see that in the passive language. We must be filled up. God must renew us after His likeness into true holiness and righteousness. But what is the means of that renewal? Or to ask it differently, how is it we're going to move toward maturity? How shall we be sanctified? We will not grow to maturity unless the Spirit of God working within us enables us to comprehend and know the love of Christ. Do you want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus? Study the love of Christ. Focus your mind on the depths, the heights, the length and breadth of the love of Christ that leads to fruitfulness. The mind set on Christ's love, the affections that are inclined to Him, bring about the subduing of the old man and more likeness unto Jesus. So do you want to grow in maturity? I'm sure no one would say, no, not me. I don't want to be mature this year. Do you want the pull of sin to be less on your affections? Do you want the call of the seducing world to be undesirable to your soul? Do you want to reflect more of Christ in your trials? Then study the love of Christ. Beloved, let us cry out to the Father that He would grant His Spirit to lead us into the limitless depths of the love of Christ. Because it's a perpetual side of His love that drives out the darkness of sin. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we stand before what Your Word declares, we are overwhelmed by what You teach us and do recognize that presently we are swimming in the shallows. We have not plunged ourselves into the deep end of the pool to study more of Christ's love. 
Lord, we pray as we enter this new year that our minds would be captivated with our Savior, that we would be taken up with our Father who has given His Son in love to us, that Your Spirit would be at work within our hearts to use the very means of grace to lead us to be taught of You that Your love would have a grip on our souls. Lord, do this work in us because we must have You to do it. Come near to us, we pray. In the name of the Lord Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen.